Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. In the last episode, we heard about the challenges that Lucy Palmer faced as she left a difficult childhood in the United Kingdom, arrived in Australia, moved to Papua New Guinea, and then found the unexpected man of her dreams and became a stepmother and all the challenges associated with that. This episode, we continue with Lucy's story and hear the further challenges that she faced and what she's learned from them. So moving back towards Julian, he was diagnosed with cancer, relatively slow moving condition. There are challenges that were there. You just had twins. Your greatest strength can also be your greatest weakness. And I was wondering, what was your greatest strength through that time? I think that probably my greatest strength was my resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. If there was a problem, I would find a way to solve it. I always felt that I was incredibly capable. Mm-hmm. There was nothing you couldn't throw at me. I think there's a lot of ego in that. I suppose I felt in my life that I was tough. I had learned how to survive in very tough situations and a sense of self-reliance so that if something came my way, well, I would find a way to resolve it. I would find a way to get it fixed. Right. And I think the greatest weakness in all of that was my inability to ask for help. Ah, okay. There's a whole other long story here, which I will not go into. But during this period, while Julian was still alive, I became a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Wildly unpopular thing to do. I completely understand. <laughs> As frankly, most of the Catholic Church institutions should be in jail. I have no issue with anyone who wants to take them apart. <laughs> but for other deep, deeper and more personal reasons, mm-hmm. I became a Catholic. And I had this guy, his name was Father Terry. And in fact, when Julian had been first diagnosed, I had asked a friend of mine, I need somewhere, I want to go on a retreat. I need to just have some silence and some peace. I need to just digest what's happened. Mm -hmm. Julian and I had been in Australia and he flew back with George. Mm -hmm. And I asked if I could have a few more days just to gather myself. Yeah. I ended up at this monastery, which was a Catholic monastery, but it also had an ashram. It was very influenced by the local Buddhist priest. Mm -hmm. A very interesting experience, 500 acres in the middle of nowhere. And so I went on a three-day silent retreat. And the only time I wasn't silent was when I was meeting with Father Terry. Mm Mm-hmm. And our first meeting, I talked very honestly about how I felt. I was very angry. I felt like someone just pulled the rug out from under my feet that just didn't know how I was going to cope and Mm -hmm. what was this going to be like. The thing that was very hard for me was that I found it very hard to ask for help. And he reframed it for me. He said, when you deny somebody the opportunity to help you if they have offered to help you, You are denying them possibility of feeling good about who they are. Right. So it's not that you're taking from somebody. Mm. What he said made sense, that giving and receiving can actually be the same thing. Mm. That by giving someone else permission to help me, I was actually giving them a sense of purpose and joy and meaning 
and that it wasn't a selfish thing, that I actually wasn't taking from them at all. I was actually giving them something that they wanted. And that has certainly been my experience ever since. That was a very, you know, as I said, you know, my strengths are also my weaknesses. I suppose I had a fairly defensive view. I think that the circumstances of my younger life and the way that I'd sort of turned my back, I suppose, on my family and said, well, bugger you lot, I'm going off by myself mm. because I can do it all by myself and I don't need you. I don't need anyone. I'm perfectly capable of mm doing everything that needs to be done. I'm proud of that aspect of my personality, but I think in those years, I definitely had to soften my right. stance, see the bigger picture, mm. a much, much bigger and more nuanced transaction that was occurring between me and my friends and my family and my husband and my stepchildren mm -hmm. that things weren't always necessarily what they seemed to be. Yeah. I could get locked into all sorts of points of view about things that happened. There was always that sort of nagging feeling that I always had, are you sure about that? Are you sure you're right about that? Are you sure you've interpreted that correctly? Mm. And there was always that feeling that there was probably more there that I was missing, that there was more, there was more to understand. There, was, there were more layers. There were more, there were more perspectives that I had been able to actually grasp in my selfish what-about-me point of view. Mm. And I think those were the years that I started to, understand that I actually didn't know very much at all. Right. It's really interesting you're talking about you, you know not wanting to let other people help you and actually what a joy it can be to help others and I think when I reflect on sort of what gives my life purpose I think the thought of being able to in the tiny ways that I can you know make a positive impact on those around me that seems like the most meaningful thing I can think of doing and I'm sure there would be a lot of other people out there who feel the same so I think you're absolutely spot on there that if you kind of close yourself off to that not only are you missing out on other people's advice or thoughts or you know, more physical help if you like you're also depriving them of the opportunity to to feel good and I think people help in whatever way they feel they can for some people it was mm. baking for some people it was taking my children and saying okay have mm. a break some people, you know, there, there were different ways in which people supported me and I had extraordinary support. But I think the thing that I found most profound, both before and after Julian's death, was the willingness of people just to come and sit with me and to accept where I was mm. and not to try and cheer me up or say something positive. Those people who could see that I was completely broken and they weren't afraid of it. And I have to say they were very rare. I think that the majority of people are very triggered by other people's <laughs> crises and problems. Mm. And so they'll come and they'll say a lot of gushing things and mm. you can tell, you can, I mean, and I, after Julian died, I sort of had this almost like a sort of laser vision into people's psyches. I could see when they weren't really comfortable that they just wanted to say the things that they needed to say and get away as quickly as they could. Yeah. Because, in fact, my situation was triggering a whole lot of anxiety and grief for them. Mm. And so I really appreciated that simple and profound state of life, actually, where you are completely at ease with somebody else's obvious searing pain. How do you think one gets there? Because I can really relate to what you're saying. One of the most powerful acts of support I can remember when I went through chemotherapy was one of my friends just sitting and working and typing on his laptop or reading a book whilst in chemo. He knew that I wasn't 
really able to speak. He knew I didn't want a conversation. And as you said, that didn't phase me, just sort of took me as I was and sort of was like, right, well, looks pretty zonked out right now, but I'm going to still be here. In your experience, how do people, is it just kind of luck of the draw? You know, people are always, generally, they're trying their best. Does it just happen that, you know, they're the key for the lock of that other person and just happens to fit? Or do you notice like certain sort of traits that allow people to really sit with someone as they're going through perhaps all manner of shit? It's interesting. I mean, and I also want to draw a brief distinction between Western societies and indigenous societies like Papua New Guinea, where I took the children for a year after Julian had died. People's response there was to be very open with my children about the fact that he died and to talk about death and to hug them and to mm. actually name it and mm. and just be real with it because death is so much part of everyday life in PNG. Mm. Whereas I think Western societies and how fragmented we are and, and the commercialization of death, the language, the removal of the body and the chapel of rest and the visiting hours and the whole ghastly paraphernalia with which the Western world has sort of crowded and diminished, in my view, this incredibly supreme achievement, which is that we can walk in the presence of death and not be afraid of it, that death is always the bird on our shoulder. And that was part of the metaphor of the book that I wrote, that, mm-hmm. you know, that being comfortable in the presence, even with the thought of your own demise or end, the end of your life, I think being able to be strong enough within yourself to be completely comfortable with someone else who is in pain is a very, very unusual trait. And it's either come through experience or for some people it is natural and innate, but it is not that common in Western societies. Far more common when I went to Papua New Guinea. Nobody batted an island. There was no embarrassment. I remember somebody saying to me, oh, you'll find people will start to avoid you. And my response to that was, thank God for that, because I just don't think I've got the energy to make them feel better about what's happened in my life. Right. I'm very glad that they want to avoid me because I don't think I've quite got the energy for this. But there was a lot of interactions that were uncomfortable. It didn't quite gel properly, didn't feel quite comfortable. And, you know, I don't judge people for that because they come to the encounter with someone like me who's just lost a husband. Mm. As somebody said, you're every woman's worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I think that I sort of understood very clearly what I was dealing with, that people were doing their best Mm. and sometimes their best was not very good. And that was okay too. And I just needed not to get too caught up with what they'd said. Because I think at the beginning, it was very easy to be very hurt. Mm. People would say, oh, you had a good life. and Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, you know, the number of expletives that were flying around inside my head. I felt very alienated from people. I felt very alienated from normal mm. family life because the trajectory of my life wasn't going in the direction that all my mm. friends were going. I was reflecting on this earlier and I'd be interested to see what you you think about this. But I was thinking about what the best things that people said to me when they heard about my diagnosis and they heard about John dying and every attempt at either, you know, justifying it or making me feel better about it, which always trivializes it. That, you know, never helps. Giving a solution never helps. Being overly upset on my behalf. So then as you were talking to then you sort of feel like you need to come to the person and say, oh, well, it's not really that bad. You know, I'm, I'm not dead yet. The thing that I take away and what I found most helpful and what I try and keep in mind, and now that occasionally you know, that come across someone who has family members passed away 
and I almost and I probably do still fall into the trap that everyone else falls into even though I've been on the other side and you're like oh that was probably a really unhelpful thing to say what I now try and keep in mind is basically just stating it as it is not trying to solve it not trying to almost sympathize too much but just saying you know look this is really really shit like what has just happened to you is really awful and i know whatever i'm going to say isn't going to change that but i just want to let you know that i understand you're going through a pile of you know i think i think there are two two things i want to say that one is the a wonderful thing that somebody said to me in a very similar sort of vein which was i have no idea what to say mm. to you i have no idea mm. And I thought, oh, I said, well, come and have a cup of tea and then let's just talk about something else. You know, that was just such a relief. We just sort of got rid of all those awkward, preliminary, chit-chatty whatevers. I think one of the things that I found incredibly humbling was the realisation of how utterly inadequate I had been on every single occasion before that time in actually being a good friend or a half-decent human being to other people who had experienced loss, it made me realize that I actually knew so little. And even later, I I think that I had a very dear friend, actually one of my closest friends died about four years after Julian did. She was the mother of two children. And even at her funeral, you know, I was anxious. I didn't, you know, wasn't quite sure what to say or, you know, was I going to upset somebody? And I thought, you know, even though I know what it's like, I still have this human dilemma Mm. of, wanting to acknowledge it and i think it is a lot to do with the way of the depth of peace that you feel within yourself Mm. because i think once you feel a depth of peace whatever you say comes from that authentic place Mm. when you're anxious about saying the wrong thing you're just overthinking overthinking and it comes out it's very awkward it's very jagged you're likely to regret it as soon as you said it because you'll be overthinking and overanalyzing and looking at the slight sort of wave of emotion coming across someone's face and think, oh my God, I've just ruined their day. And all of that, I find that if I'm going to be with myself in a place of grief, or if I'm going to be with somebody else who's in a place of grief, if I'm actually not present in the fullest sense of the word, you know, mind, body, and soul, then I'm going to say dumb things or I'm, mm. or I'm going to somehow strike the wrong note. I want to ask, you talked about death before and it being you know a taboo how do you feel about death one of the things that really surprised me i I was 38 when julian died so you know i I was sort of young but sort of technically mature i had three children i was you know technically a fully fledged adult got a lot of box ticks it looks good on paper but in reality i knew very little about death i knew i i knew about it in theory and i knew about it in some sort of esoteric slash spiritual experience sort of sense or a poetic sense and um, i'd read you know john dunn or jared manley hopkins or i'd read the tibetan book of living and dying i mean i'd read a lot and i'd thought a lot and reflected a lot about what is death and what do I believe and do I believe anything about, you know, the afterlife and what does it all mean anyway? I went to a conference actually with Henry. It was called Spirituality and Palliative Care. And it was a whole lot of people from all religions, all walks of life who went to a conference to talk about spirituality and palliative care, the spirituality of caring and what that is. And there was an Aboriginal man there talking about what it is to care for people who are dying in his tradition. 
And the thing that I really took away from that conference was the importance of being present at the death, if if that's how it came about. The importance of suspending whatever I thought, Mm -hmm. whatever I believed, whatever that was, at that door and walking into that experience with a completely open mind and open heart. What do you mean by that? Do you mean you're talking about how metaphorical are we talking about? Literally, when you walk into the room of someone who is dying and just letting whatever hits you hit you. Yeah, it was about not overthinking it, not getting too anxious, not trying to fix it, not trying to focus on, oh, is he comfortable in bed or all the other little things, but actually Mm -hmm. being open to the experience itself which I found incredibly hard. And on the night that Julian died, all his children were there. They'd all come back from overseas. His friends from Oxford who were visiting Australia, like a seven-hour drive when they drove there. And my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were there. And there were probably other people there as well. But I don't really remember. What I do remember is I didn't want to go upstairs. So one of the families had you know, made a big pot of curry so we could all eat. And we were going in shifts up to what was our room. And I didn't want to go. I just kept staying at the table, toying with my food, trying to sort of make more conversation, doing everything that I possibly could to put off what I knew was waiting for me upstairs because I knew that things were, his death was fairly close and I did not want to see it. And then I remember looking at one of Julian's really old friends, Meg, and she just gave me this look. And I didn't hear her speak, but I heard her voice. And her voice said, it's time. You need to be with him. Mm. And then I started this long walk up the stairs to the bedroom. And it was a surreal experience because we had candles burning. The light was low. There was music playing. Whoever was in the room was either on the bed or on another chair, just gathered around the bed. And I sort of knew that this was my job now. This was my Mm. role to tell him that he could go. And that was another thing that I'd learned from that conference, that it was very important that people who are dying feel that you're not hanging on to them. Oh, please don't go. It's terrible. We we need you here, that you can somehow give them permission. And... Mm. That was the intention with which I sort of climbed those stairs, stealing myself to see the thing that I didn't want to see, to deal with the thing that I didn't want to deal with, to face the greatest fear that my life and everything that I knew and everything that I had relied on for these last few years was about to change forever. But I did have an extraordinary experience in the moment that he died. So I knelt next to him, I lay with him, I told him we were all going to be fine and that he could go, and that I loved him. And I just kept saying it over and over. And then there was this kind of strange moment where it was almost like the whole, it's going to sound really weird, and I haven't taken any drugs today, I assure you, and I hadn't on that day either. But it was almost like I could feel something in me expanding, and I was kneeling next to the bed, and I felt, and this is going to sound really weird, I felt the experience of the most pure joy I have ever experienced in my life. My whole body and being just felt this amazing sense of joy. And then it passed, went, went out, just sort of almost passed through me. It took about two or three seconds. And then when I looked back at him, he'd gone. And I really had the sense, maybe I made it up. Maybe that's just what I want to believe because it comforts me. But there was something about that moment. It was that unexpected joy 
it was this revelation that the wall that I couldn't see over and the blankness and the void that we all experience within ourselves and in our lives, maybe it actually wasn't the terrible thing that we felt. And I thought, if that is death, this is part of the sort of, it's beautiful truth that there is this other element. If it's possible, I don't know because mm. you know, I haven't been there and come back to tell anyone, but <laughs> that was a life-defining and absolutely life-changing moment. And I won't say that I'm not scared of death anymore or anything like that, but I think that I couldn't explain it. I didn't want to explain. I didn't need to explain it. It just made me wonder, well, is that what it's actually like? Is that what it's actually like? Wow, I'd never thought of that. Right. I'd never thought it could actually be joy. I just always saw it as something dark and negative and bleak and lonely. And But the thought of it actually being this experience of extraordinary expanding joy mm. blew my mind. That episode that you've just described and the way you walked up the stairs it's just aching. It made, I'm not quite sure what in me ache, but it just the foreboding that you felt and the inevitability was clearly incredibly challenging. And not having even a way of sort of justifying or kind of being able to mollify the inevitability or mitigate it, it was going to happen very shortly. I don't want to use the word duty or obligation or responsibility. But as I said to you, you know, I was married to Julian long before I actually married him. And when I took my vows, as he did, everything was great. And Richard for poor, oh yeah, well, we're doing okay. And in sickness and in health, well, we're really, you know, everything's great. Mm. And it really wasn't until he got sick that I actually had to go back and revisit my vows. I mean, you asked me earlier, did I ever think about leaving? I would probably say yes, actually, now, a thousand times a day. Did I ever think about it seriously? No. Did I ever want to leave? Many, many times. It was so hard. It was so hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Keep turning up day after day to just watch this disintegration, and it was a very traumatizing thing to be part of. Mm. But part of that sort of deeper questioning, which has always been a part of what I do, was that I had this really strong sense that when I married Julian, that the vows were actually not for him. They were actually for me, hmm. that I was actually making a promise to myself about the kind of woman I wanted to be. Ah. Oh. Yes, that it doesn't matter what happens, I'm going to be there. Whatever it costs me, I will be there for you. That's a really interesting thought. I'd never considered marriage vows as not for the other person, but as a commitment to yourself of who you will be. Yes. Wow. Yes. I, I, I felt it at the time that I got married, but I think it, that my reflection on those words and what they really meant, mm. what does it mean? You know, what does it mean when you say in sickness and in health? I mean, because it's such a, a well-worn phrase, Mm. It trips off people's tongue. Oh, yeah, they had the vows. Yeah, we love, honor, and not obey, or we're going to richer for poorer, better for worse. Yeah, whatever. Let's just get on with the party. Get the rings on and have a good time. Let's go and have some champagne. But I think that in those darker days where I really wondered what the hell I was doing there and how had I got myself into this unbelievable situation. Mm. And how was it going to end? And could I actually do it? I was so exhausted with caring for Julian, caring for the children. I mean, it was just relentless. You know, it was seven days a week, 24 hours a day. 
and I had so little sleep and that just made everything so difficult. And I think there were many moments where I really didn't know how I was going to keep going. I didn't know how I was going to remain married in this sort of tormented, tortuous situation. And I think that was really what I was grappling with in the dirt, with my own soul, with my own conscious, with who I was. It was the vows that I'd made that were ultimately that guiding point. You know, it was a, a promise to myself. He could do whatever he wanted. If he wanted to break the vows, if he wanted to be an ass, that's up to him. Mm. This is who I want to be. Right. And that's what matters to me. It's so interesting you're saying that because that's the attitude of taking control of the things you can control. And that's only, <laughs> it's only you, like the only things that we can control are exactly what we do. And so if we're in a relationship or in a friendship or in a job situation, you know, all we have control over is how we ourselves handle that situation. And that doesn't necessarily mean the other person's going to like us. But at the end of the day, I guess that's where it comes down to being happy in ourselves that we've done the things that we're happy with. And I think the really difficult thing about that is that that then by its very nature doesn't rely on external validation, which is how so much of our value is often derived. And so it's very difficult to know if you've done a good job. (laughs) Well, that's right. I think it's been easy for other people to look at me. You still have lots of family support or they they looked at me like, oh my God, how are you possibly doing it? So it's very easy for them to say, well, my God, you're doing an amazing job or doing what you're doing. I was in it and I felt I was doing an okay job. I knew that I could do a great job for a week or I could do an okay Mm. job for a month and a mediocre job for a year. And I went for the longer haul. I mean, this sort of goes back to these long walks. I'm not a sprinter. I psychologically much more towards the the long haul way of doing. And I saw Julian's path and and my life too. It was a desert walk in another form. It was Mm. going to take everything that I had. It was going to be lonely. It was going to be hard. And there were going to be moments that were so sublime and so beautiful and so extraordinary that they would take my breath away, that they would be such a tiny part of the experience, that that is what I was also hoping for and praying for, that that I would have those moments of pure joy and reward, even just by looking on some extraordinary thing of beauty. And I think when I was writing the book and I was thinking about a title, I went back to a conversation that I had with somebody who has now become a dear friend and she runs something called the Quest for Life Centre in Australia. She is a can liver and she overcame leukaemia many years ago, a very severe form of leukaemia, I think. She packed up her life, left her children with her ex-husband and went and lived in a cave where St Francis of Assisi had lived. And she lived there for three or four months and grappled with every horrible demon that she had when she came out of that the cancer was no longer there and she has spent her whole life now teaching people about meditation and good eating and more about the Mm. mentality the state of mind and soul with which you live your life Mm. she had said to me in one session when julian was still alive she said so what do you think of the gifts of cancer and i was so shocked and I was almost actually offended by the question. Mm. I thought, I probably won't have to repeat what I thought, but... (laughs) Anything goes Completely taken aback. You know, what the fuck are you talking about? Gifts? There's no gifts. My whole life's falling apart. My husband's ill. Children are going to grow up without a father. What 
what gifts could you possibly be talking about? Mm. Then I started to think about it. And one of the things that I said was that one of the great things about Julian having cancer is that we've actually got to spend a lot more time together. And as I talked, I was trying to work out what she wanted from me or what answer she was seeking. But I could feel it was almost like my mind was just kind of slowly moving to the point of, well, I mean, okay, so there are some, yeah, there's some good stuff. And one of the things that I said was that I can really understand now what matters and what doesn't. And I'm living my life in a completely different way. Mm. So mm. at that point, she said, well, maybe cancer's like a little bird, like a little bird on your shoulder that's reminding you how to live. And so the metaphor for the bird on the shoulder became that idea. It became Julian. It became so many other things. But this idea that because we live in such a death-denying culture that not only are we denying death, which we think is good for us, but that we are living as a society at a very superficial and fairly unsatisfactory level. And I think it had the same impact on Julian. He started doing things, reading things, painting, walking, riding horses. Mm -hmm. He didn't waste his time. There's an irony there, isn't there? To be truly faced with death in an unavoidable way invigorates, gives life. Julian was always like that. He sort of always lived like that. I mean, I remember when I met him, he was, what, 54, and he just started learning how to ride when he was 50 because he wanted to play polo and he wanted to be able to ride a horse. I mean, he was quite ungainly on a horse and not particularly good, but whatever he lacked in skill, he made up for an enthusiasm. And so when he died, it was a funny kind of thing because, yes, he was going to miss out on his children. And, yes, there was so much sadness about his death. But no one actually said, well, he didn't have a great life and his best years were ahead of him. And what a shame he never got to do X, Y or Z for his sake. Because I think everybody could see that he'd lived that life all his life pretty much as well as he could anyway. So some people mm -hmm. are born with old souls and, and maybe he knew mm -hmm. something about the inevitability of death. And that you can't control the time, but you can control how you live it. So the aim is regardless of what age that you die, people can say, well, look at him, he, or sorry, even she lived a really full life. And the number of years they happen to live is in that case, just a number. Well, it is. And I think it was really interesting when I met you and you were telling me about your trip and to Beijing, which is obviously going to be resuming soon. And your philosophy and the way that you dealt with and are dealing with the uncertainty of your physical life because it was such a prompt to me, it sort of took me back to that place that I was living a few years ago and have somehow mm. sort of slipped away from in some way. And I think we were talking about this the other day. I feel like I want to rest. That's, <laughs> that's how I've been quite happy to stay in Kyrgyzstan. At this point, I just want time to just gather the enormity of the last 20 years of what it's been like to raise three children alone and what it's been like to be to be responsible for absolutely every single thing. And I'm just having this lovely period of time where if there's a problem here in the apartment in Kyrgyzstan, it's not my problem. I'm not running a farm anymore. Someone else is running that now. I've got a chance to sort of feel that freedom again. But the thing I don't want to leave behind is the bird on my shoulder. And I think that it is very easy to numb out and avoid the things that we don't want to think about, the things we don't want to face. I certainly know that when I was brave enough to face those things, 
and to digest and understand those experiences. They truly were the most exhilarating experiences of my life. But it takes a lot of courage to stand in that space of pain. And sometimes I'm up to it and sometimes I'm not. Yes. And I'm okay with that. I don't feel like I need to be living on the edge the whole time. Now what? Where am I now? What do I want to take forward into the rest of my life? So you'll be very pleased to hear that I've just signed up to do a course in poetry, an eight-week masterclass, and it's called What the Light Tells Us. And I got a really great feeling that I'm sort of getting ready for a whole other kind of creative unfolding. I feel that I've needed to rest and recover and just get my bearings, you know, as a woman by myself whose children are not old enough to not need me at all, but they don't need me there physically. Mm -hmm. So what the light tells us, apart from my daily work here at the university, that's the thing I'm most excited about, Mm. the possibility of somehow Mm. turning all this experience into words, understated words that leave space for the reader and that can resonate with other people and that Ultimately, what you want and what I want is for us to feel that this is a shared experience at some, whatever level we can find it, that this is a shared experience and this is what we want, to go through life feeling as though Mm. we can be touched by others and we can also touch others. Yeah. I want to return to one of the things you said a little bit earlier about how life is, you know, if you're lucky enough you get those sublime moments coming in life, but they happen if we're lucky and there's no expectation on them. And I just thought that was a really interesting point. We've had an amazing chat already and I have sort of burning questions that I want to sort of delve into. Can you tell us what the feeling was like when Julian died? You'd been caring for him for, well, I'm guessing in one form or another, you know, for basically the best part of six years. It, as you said, was exhausting and suddenly those commitments go. That's really interesting. Um, I think what it, with Julian, I just felt that I had that stick to lean on. I just felt that I had somebody who was unquestioningly on my side, somebody who saw me through a much kinder lens than I saw myself. I was very critical of myself and my shortcomings, but in his eyes, I was pretty bloody fabulous. (laughs) And it always struck me as odd that we never had that conversation before he died, which is how are you going to cope and what are you going to do and and what's it going to be like? And then I realized after he died that it didn't even occur to him that I wouldn't be fine and that I would find my way, that his faith in my abilities was so unerring that he just didn't think that Mm. that was even an issue. And I think too that Despite all the difficulties, despite all the things that were presented, I somehow felt intact in that marriage. There was something about my relationship with Julian and his relationship with me that made me feel he wasn't perfect, not by any means. And there were many times when, you know, I could have quite happily strangled him to death. But there was an essential promise somewhere in it all that no matter what, I'm going to be there. And presumably, had you been diagnosed with cancer, that same promise would have gone exactly the other way. And that's why it worked. Because if you had drawn the short straw, Julian would have done exactly what you would have done. Do you th- is that? I don't know though that he would have done exactly what I would have done, but that's the trust. And that's the hope, isn't it? Of an intimate relationship 
that when the chips are down and when it all comes down to it, that those people, maybe not even physically, but in some form, and again, this becomes a sort of whole esoteric question, doesn't it? That the faith that you put in someone is clearly beyond their physical capabilities, but Mm. that you hope and, and pray that at the end of it all, that you feel somewhere in your soul intuitive certainty that they are still there and still sort of rooting for you in some way. I think that's what the best relationships do. They they make you want to be the best version of yourself and someone who has that faith in you. But of course, you know, you will be this person and you're like, that can bring out the very best. Yeah, I mean, I, as I say, he saw me through a much more generous lens than I saw myself. So when it dawned on me that this is what he expected me to do, I was completely blindsided. I was thinking, you know, he's clearly got me mixed up with somebody else because I am not that great. You know, I am not that noble, generous. <laughs> I'm not any of those things that he clearly believes that I am. But that's actually the person I would love to be. But I'm not that person. And it's a little bit like those long walks. I'm lazy, but I love to dream of the woman that I would love to be. And in those moments, and there have been many of those moments in my life, I have achieved that. I don't achieve it every day, Mm. but there have been certain moments in my life where I've chased this internal dream of the kind of strength and resilience and fairness and patience and all the qualities that I admire in other people, and I genuinely do admire them. Mm. And just to even feel that I've come within a glancing blow of achieving that sort of internal stature for myself, that is the greatest reward of all. I know that if I had ever at any point really genuinely walked away from Julian, I never would have forgiven myself. Mm. It, was just, it was just never an option. Yeah. And it wasn't about him only. It was about the woman I wanted to be because I knew that once he died, I still had to live with myself. So whatever I did, I've got to be able to sleep at night and I've got to live with my own regrets or disappointments. Could I have done some things better? Absolutely. Now, at 57, looking back on this youngish woman in her 30s with three small children in a country you know, that she hadn't lived in for years with no family and no, not a great deal of support, I have enormous compassion. Mm. So when I look back at her in my mind's eye and she's losing her temper and being a total ass, I actually have compassion because you are just so far out of your depth, you don't even know what to do with yourself. Mm. And one of the great things about Julian too, he never held those moments against me. Mm. Um, Actually, I will just add that the worst thing he ever said to me was that you're really beginning to annoy me. Oh, wow. And he said it in such a way that it actually reduced me to rubble because it was actually the worst thing he ever said. And I just went, okay, you've gone too far now. He said, you have a very unfortunate uh, method of arguing. I mean, he was a lawyer, so he knew about how to mount a good argument. He described them as the Hitler monologues. I don't know what he's talking about, Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) There were lots of things for both of us to forgive in one another. And I think in the end that the good outweighed the bad. And I was very fortunate that he clearly thought I was a much nicer person than I really was and gave me that sense that I could still reach that that pinnacle, that I could actually be better. 
And so the final question of today's conversation, this is a person who saw the best in you and made you aspire yourself to be that best version. Also someone you cared for for years at great. I'm not sure you would think of it necessarily as a, you know, a sacrifice or, or a cost. I think it's something that you decided to willingly do and that's why it worked. But what did you feel when he died, because I wondered there could be a lot of people feeling there are all sorts of things that they should feel or shouldn't feel, particularly at the end of a very long and stressful time. How did you feel you should feel? I would say that I felt every single emotion that you could possibly imagine. I was very angry. At first, I was just in shock. I just I had no idea what had happened. Intellectually, I knew he died. Even a few weeks after he died, actually, it was my birthday. So a few friends decided to come over to the, to the farm and we'd have a few drinks. And because Julian had died, I think more people felt that they wanted to support mm. me. It actually turned into one of the best parties I've ever had. We were dancing and drinking and carrying on. And it was almost even at that point, I had this sort of split personality. I, there was a part of me that was just watching myself thinking, who does that? Mm. What are you doing? And then another part of me that was completely oblivious. I think there was a devastation, a level of physical pain I have never experienced, not even in childbirth. The actual physical pain of loss, anger towards him, towards the world, towards people who said stupid, insensitive things, towards the whole just enormous injustice of it all that these three children were now left without a parent. And, you know, poor bastards have got left with only one person and that happens to be me. How am I going to do this? You know, I mean, that's really bad luck. I just didn't know how I was going to survive. I didn't want to survive. I would have been quite happy to have died in those months. Not in a horrible way, but, you know, that was the yawning hole that was left inside my psyche. You know what it's like when you're, and you would know having had all this treatment. There's a certain point where you just think, you know what, if I float away now, I'm okay with that because I am so exhausted. And I feel so spent. I've just got nothing. But by some miracle, that never happened. Mm. And then I would find myself getting up in the morning and making breakfast for three little people and cleaning up toys or changing Mm. nappies or somehow, and I have no idea how this happened, somehow, just step by step, day by day, even hour by hour, people would say, well, just take it one day at a time. And I was thinking, oh, it's actually an hour. Maybe it's even 10 minutes at this point. Because the force of those emotions was so overwhelming mm-hmm. that I just didn't know how I was going to get through my life. And it sounds as well that you had these immense emotions going around you and very little to insulate you from them and also perhaps not much of a support network to hold you up during this time. I became very close to my stepsons. I don't really call them my stepsons, I just call them my older sons. But I actually became very close to my older sons during this period, particularly before Julian died, and to lesser and greater degrees after, because again, it was a shared experience and we were all in it together. And I think that they have expressed this. Thank God you were there. Just making sure that everything happened as it needed to happen. And it was this kind of choreography behind the scenes, something that I just focus on it until we're ready. And so it meant that when he did die, there was nothing else to do. 
we could just focus on that. All the medical stuff was taken care of. We had done this and done that. And I think that they knew then that whatever misgivings they had had about any sincerity or insincerity of intent that I had, that that was now not for questioning anymore. The way you told it, it sounded like a pretty desperate time. What would you have told yourself looking back now? Oh, I think I would have told myself that this will end. This will get easier. I think the most horrifying thought I had was, is this it? Is this how my life's going to be? Because initially, after Julian died, I felt quite numb. And I remember thinking, well, you know, I'm quite good at this grief business. I don't know what everyone's making such a fuss about. It's actually not that bad. I, I actually feel okay. And the reality was that it just hadn't hit me yet. And if somebody had told me at that point, you know what, it's going to be really hard, but you will get through it. But then there was another part of me that just thought, well, clearly you don't know what's going on for me. And clearly your situation is different because it is unrelenting and it doesn't feel like it's going to be. Mm. I just could not see the future. I could not see how my life was going to unfold. And I think my decision to take a job as a volunteer in Papua New Guinea, I think it was about four years after Julian had died, and take the children and put them in school there and just start over, to sort of have that time to get away from pooling inadequacies of Western mm. culture when it comes to widows and children and death and horror. And I was just very, very glad to be somewhere where I felt incredibly at home before I sort of walked back and started tackling it again. That sounds like a topic for another conversation because that is another chapter of your life. Lucy, it's already been just such a pleasure talking to you and very powerful that you've been so open on some pretty hard, about as hard hitting as it gets. And we're going to finish with something just a little bit lighter, depending on what your answers are, of course. I would love to know your most important place, so I know where to travel, your favourite piece of music, and your favourite book. You don't need to plug your own here. I will put a link in the description. You can actually say your second most favourite book. So your favourite place. Well, I think my favourite place would have to be somewhere very unexpected. High up in the mountains of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is like a sort of stegosaurus. So the middle of it is sort of full of really profound mountain ranges. And mm. in these mountain ranges, there are huge valleys. So there are two sides of this range with a huge valley in between. And it's been so well hidden for so long that it wasn't until the 1930s that white explorers and therefore the rest of the world came to discover that there actually was this place called the Highlands of Papua New Guinea. It also meant that this was the first time that people in the Highlands of Papua New Guinea had any idea that the rest of the world even existed. And they had been there as a continuous civilization for thousands of years. In fact, there are terraced gardens there, the Gardens of Cook, which are 10,000 years old, far, far predating the early terraced gardens of Egyptian mm. life and Egyptian wow. culture. So this is one of those extraordinary places that has been really untouched by any major change for hundreds of years. And there's a funny little town there called Mount Hagen. When you go there, it's dusty. There's Chinese shops everywhere. There's Papua New Guinea guys walking around with machetes because everyone walks around with, with a machete. It's the sort of main town in this region of Papua New Guinea, which is sort of quite famous for a lot of its tribal fighting and cannibalism, and you name it, all the sort of 
all the sort of sexy stuff that Westerners love. All the tropes. And there's a little village there called Willier Village. And in Willier Village, there's a tiny house that's made out of pit pit. It's like sort of very fine cane, so you can sort of weave it. There's a step near the front of the house. And down in the valley below, there's just a lovely creek. And that is my favourite place in all of the world. Thank you, Lucy. Your favourite piece of music? Absolutely, hands down, a piece of music from an album called Afternoon in Paris by the um, jazz violinist Stefan Grappelli. He's done two or three versions of this particular song, but they just don't meet this one. This song is called Misty. It's just a very beautiful melody. The greatest piece of music that I have never tired of among the hundreds of pieces of music that I do love. I'm going to look forward to listening to it. And your favourite book? I mean, there have been so many books that I've read that have just taken my breath away. But the book that I love reading over and over and over would be Middlemarch by George Eliot. I had a copy in my bedroom. I had a copy in my bathroom. In fact, the one in the bathroom is the copy I used to just read in the bath. And so it's all really discoloured and all the pages are sort of folded out and sort of gone into funny shapes. So it's a book that you can keep on coming back to and speaks to the human condition. A masterpiece. Lucy, it has been an absolute pleasure. We've gone into some really interesting topics. I feel I've learned a lot. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and what you said about your willingness to talk to others to help you live your life a bit better. That to me is a huge part of this podcast. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I'm thank you so much for giving me the space to explore so many experiences and ideas. And some of them became more fully formed during this discussion and, and more clear in my own mind. So sometimes you don't know what you really think until you have the space to express it. So thank you for the space. And that was my conversation with Lucy Palmer. Thank you so much for joining us. One thing I'm going to take from this conversation is how beneficial it can be to let other people help us and not doing it simply because it improves our lives, but doing it also because allowing other people to contribute and develop us as a person gives them a meaning and a purpose and a sense of satisfaction as well. This is certainly something that I found over the past couple of weeks here in Moldova, being able to visit and feel like I'm feel like I'm being a little bit useful and contributing my own story to some of the people that I meet gives me a great sense of satisfaction. I hope it helps them, but actually it's also something that I very much benefit from too. That's it for this week. I really hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe, share, tell everyone about the Facing Up podcast and I will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.